Good morning. If you'd like to join me in turning open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6 today for the entirety of our lessons. I appreciate all of you being here. It's a blessing to come and worship our God together. An energetic singing to start our morning is a wonderful way to begin our Sunday. And so I thank you for that. And so this morning, as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be finding our place in the church uh, we're continuing our series on that. Tim will be bringing us a lesson at 11 o'clock that will help us to see our prayers as part of the church. So our, for our study together here this morning at 9 o'clock, we will be laying some groundwork. We're going to be laying some groundwork by looking at Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6 that he uses to teach his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, we get to attend a master class on prayer. In Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, it begins with the apostles requesting of Jesus, teach us to pray. Do you ever think about that request? The apostles could have asked Jesus anything in that moment. Teach us to perform miracles. Teach us to preach. Teach us how to be so patient with the crowds. Teach us not to be afraid. But they ask him to teach them to pray. Jesus is the best teacher that we could ask for to help us to pray. Let's see real quick why he is the master teacher. I'm going to list off a few things for us here, so listen along. Jesus prays before every big event, when he prays in the garden before his death, when he prays at the Lord's Supper, and he prays before big events. He prays any time he can be alone. In Luke chapter 11, as we previously mentioned, Jesus came from praying in a certain place by himself. And then we know in Matthew chapter 14, after John the Baptist is killed, Jesus seeks to go into the wilderness so that he can pray alone. And then Jesus prays for those who are around him. Jesus prays for the disciples and for the apostles. In John chapter 17, he asks God that he might sanctify them for the service ahead of them. Jesus is the master teacher for prayer. He's the one who needs to be teaching us to pray this morning and he prayed as the Son of God, and all throughout his life, he's the perfect example for us to focus on this morning. And this is the prayer he gave to us to model our prayers after. And so it's worth spending some time to root ourselves in prayer together so we can find our place in the church with prayer. So let's read our prayer together, starting in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. First, 
Did you notice the pronouns in this prayer? Listen to this. Our Father, give us our bread. Forgive us as we, our debts, our debtors, lead us, deliver us. This is our prayer. This is a prayer that we can use collectively and we can do collectively. There are individual prayers, but this prayer also teaches us how to pray as the church. And remember, this takes place on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't teaching one apostle how to pray. He isn't teaching one disciple how to pray. He's teaching the multitude how to pray as a group. So this is how we find our place in the church using prayer at its core. It's something that we do together. And we pray together in our assemblies. We prayed together this morning. Parker led us in prayer. And we will pray continually throughout our assembly today at the beginnings of our Bible classes and throughout our worship. We will stop and we will pray together. We will pray together throughout our week. At the beginnings of our meals, we will stop and pray. If we have Bible studies in each other's homes, we will use opportunities to pray. And of course, there are more ways that we pray together. There's another way that we share our prayers, and that is in the way that we pray in private. Prayer is something that we do for each other. These are our prayers for a few different reasons. Number one, because we share the same God. Sharing the same God means we direct our praise and our petitions to the same place. We see his glory together, and our prayers are lifted up in unison because of that. Second, because we share a bond in Jesus Christ. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins, for the purity of our lives, for the usefulness of our service. Our prayers are not just for myself, but they're for ourselves. Our prayers are for the collective church and the family of God. We pray that the way we walk with God, that everyone in God's kingdom may walk strong in God's faith. And of course, we make petitions to God on, on each other's behalf. That when someone is sick, when someone is suffering, or someone is sad, we pray for them that God may comfort them and heal them in that way. These are our prayers, and we share them together. But we need to, to stop for a moment, because Jesus starts this section on prayer with some limitations. And so some temptations of prayer that we can see in verses 5 through 8. And first, we have to see the limitations that can stop our prayers from being effective before we can look at the prayer itself. First, we see hypocrisy was a part of the church, and the hypocrisy was focused on the place of their prayers. It was a temptation for these people to get up and to try and pray in public places. They wanted to be known. They wanted to be seen and heard for their prayers. But let's pause and, and realize something for a moment that the synagogue was not an inappropriate place for prayer. The street corner may not have been an inappropriate place for prayer. So what was inappropriate then? It was their intent. Their intent was that they wanted to be seen. Prayer is not about where you are, but the heart of it. It is the something that allows us to draw closer to God. And their motive was pride, pulling them further and further from God. They wanted to be seen by others uh, for their prayers. And we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount that has a large emphasis on that. Listen, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you that you may be praised by others. When you fast, do not look gloomy that your fasting may be seen by others. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Jesus is trying to instill this in the disciples that prayer is done between you and God. Not to impress anyone else. Service is the same. Godliness is the same. Our lives are for God, not that we might try to be prideful. And so we uncover a truth here for ourselves. The prayers of the people of God are not just public prayers with the goal of being known by others, being thought of as a, wow, he is a good prayer. He's impressive by the way he puts his words together. But it's a humble part of our lives. We use it to get closer to God, and what a blessing that he hears us and guides us so that we can pray in private. The second temptation we see here is this empty phrases. And the core of that is that these people were, these Gentiles were getting up and they were praying as they were ignorant of God. They didn't understand what kinds of prayers were making them heard. And so they thought the longer their prayers were, the more they could be heard for what they said. They had to be eloquent. They had to be a certain length. They had to be special in order for God to hear them. This should bring thoughts of Mount Carmel to our minds. When the prophets of Baal came before on their contest with Elijah, they were getting louder and louder and more extreme, cutting themselves so that their gods could hear them. Of course, they fell on deaf ears. But that's not how our God hears our prayers. He hears our humble petitions when we put our faith in him rather than our faith in our own methods of prayer. Our faith goes into him. So we needed to stop and see these things. These two things can keep us from having effective prayer. If we are hip hypocrites or if we do not know who our God is. And so we can know what we need to do to give our best in prayer. Our motivation for giving our best in prayer is who we pray to. This is our prayer and this is who we pray to. Our Father who is in heaven. What a blessing that we get to call him our Father. Jesus could have easily said here, my Father. And we could be left calling him Lord or King or any other of God's titles. And we would have been blessed to do so. We would have been blessed just to have been given this prayer even from a more um, separate role. But Jesus shares with us. He invites us to call him God, our Father. We were invited into the most perfect relationship that there is. We were invited to be a sibling to the most obedient son and a child to the most loving father there is. What a blessing that we get to call him our Father. And furthermore, with that relationship comes the benefits of having a perfect father. He is a protector who gives us hope. He provides, he leads, he is all that we need. What an amazing God we serve, and we get to call him Father. And he is in heaven. He isn't a father with limitations. He's not a weak, distant father, but he is a powerful father seated on the throne in glory, ready to answer every praise and every request sent to him. Let's notice something fun for a moment. Go with me here. The use of Father in the Sermon on the Mount is incredible. 
Uh, and I'm just going to read off all the uses of the Father in the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And he says again, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. For if you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And finally, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that incredible? All the way throughout this sermon. And at the end of the sermon, the crowds are amazed at Jesus' authority. We have this new prophet that is coming, teaching this new teaching, but he doesn't sound like the prophets of the Old Testament that came with judgment and condemnation. He is coming with a new relationship with God the Father, and he is sharing that with us. Our Father who is in heaven. What a blessing. God being in heaven is in perfect position for his glory. He can be praised from all places and from all people. He is surrounded by multitudes of heavenly beings, and our praises can reach him too. He is seated in power and glory. He's perfectly positioned for his availability to us. We can pray to him, and he is available to us. We can lay our cares before him. You see that all the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that use of Father, that he is providing for his children, and that is a common thread there. What an incredible gift that this is the God that we can pray to. And so Jesus gives the first request concerning God, and that is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word we use very often outside of this particular prayer. Uh, hallowed is a word that means respect and reverence. It means to treasure God's name in our lives. It, it lifts it up. And by the way, the name of God is significant. Jesus could have said, hallowed be your kingdom, hallowed be your throne, hallowed be any number of God's titles, but he chose God's name. The name of God is a constant theme and is incredibly important throughout scripture. For him, it is not just a name, but it carries his character with it. It is all that he is. And so in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses asks to see the glory of God, he gets the name of the Lord and all that entails. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The name of the Lord encompasses all that he is. Another example, Ezekiel chapter 20 is a powerful retelling of the history of Israel. 
It, and God's continued providence is obvious throughout this chapter and saving Israel from their sin and not delivering them to destruction because of their sin. And this story is told by two phrases. I saved you for the sake of my name and that they may know that I am the Lord. Both of those phrases are used four times in this chapter. God's name carries with it who he is and what he has done for us. And so how does this affect my prayer now? God's name is so great. We understand that. We see God's great works through his name. Salvation and creation and all that he has done is wrapped up in the name of God. We see God's great word, the teaching that he has left for us about our life in him. The scriptures given to us are so perfect and our understanding of who he is and his name is wrapped up in that. And we see his great character, that he is a perfect God, loving in every way. What an amazing God. His name teaches us who he is and what he has done. And so God's name is sacred. His character is carried out in his name. So in our prayers, we see Jesus instructing us to remember that. We aren't just praying to someone who doesn't matter, but we are lifting up the holy name of God. Our prayers should only cause us to show reverence because God's name is holy. Hallowed be his name. And so Jesus gives the second request concerning God. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's an extra underline there. You can ignore that. Notice the priority that, that, that God gets in our prayers, though. Before we talk about ourselves, before we mention anything about ourselves, God's will comes first. It is so easy for us to make our prayers about us. We've got a lot going on in our lives, don't we? There's a lot of cares, a lot of trials, a lot of struggles, so many things to lift up to God for him to help us. And thanks be to God that he hears those things. But it would help us to get into the habit of praising God before we talk about ourselves. We've got to remember our place. We are the creation coming before the creator. We are the saved coming before the savior. He deserves all praise and all glory. So we pray that his kingdom come and his will be done. And his kingdom coming is the hope for our lives. We want God to come and to fill the earth so that he can be praised. Praying that his will be done could imply that God's will is not often done on this earth. People are going to live in a way that is contrary to God's will. People don't often consider God's will above their own. We do it every time we sin, don't we? Every time we sin, we're saying, my will be done, not thy will be done. So we pray that our will may be bent and molded to his will. We pray that he leads us. We don't pray that God's will bends to meet ours. We don't pray that God can grant exceptions to his will so that we can get what we want. This is an opportunity to humble ourselves and to put our desires before him. And by the way, we aren't just throwing thy will be done into the end of a prayer because we feel like we should. We, we love James chapter 4. It's a wonderful chapter, and we get in the habit of saying, if God wills, at the end of a sentence. And that's a good habit. It's a good thing to say. 
but we need to make sure it's more than just a habit. That it is an attitude that we truly want to take a backseat to what God has in store for us. That we want God's will to come first in our lives, and that is something that is sincere and not just habit. Secondly, thy will be done is not just a cop-out, saying, I don't really believe my prayer is going to happen. I don't really believe that it's going to be heard. And so I'm going to say, thy will be done so I can have a reason not to believe. Thy will be done is a heart attitude where we can give God the glory and give God the agency to lead us in our lives. And he is first. His will is more important than what we want. His will leads us. Remember, Jesus is the perfect example of this in the garden. Let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. In his most difficult moments, Jesus was able to ask for God's will above his own. He is the perfect model for us in this heart, in this example. And this isn't a half-hearted request. God, your will be done when I feel like it. Your will be done 50% of my ability. No, your will be done as it is in heaven. God is served by countless angels. God created the heavens and the earth with a word. God conquered death. And we are serving to his standard. What an incredibly high calling we have in front of us. God is, uh, is used to being served beyond what we can even comprehend. He's eternal. And Jesus is teaching us to pray that he is served in our lives the way that he is in heaven. And remember, Jesus knows exactly what that looks like. He came down from heaven to be on earth with us. He knows what the myriads of angels do for the Lord. He knows what God's will looks like in heaven and that it is done perfectly every single time. This is not an empty statement Jesus is making, but this is a challenge for us to live a certain way, that we can strive to the perfect service that God deserves. And this might be the most difficult thing for us to pray for. When you think about our prayer and honoring God as he is in heaven, this heightens our service, does it not? This prayer is difficult. This prayer is our song, I Surrender All. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in me, in us. But we do it because our God is worth it. Hallowed be his name. Our God is so good. And so then Jesus shifts in this prayer. We have considered the Lord and have sent praises to his name and requested that he and his glory fill the earth. And now we turn to earthly prayers, to ourselves. And so Jesus, in the first prayer, in our desperate need, asks for our daily bread. It seems so amazing that the first request that Jesus gives us after the glorification of God is for our daily bread. It seems so small. It seems mundane compared to the will of God and the kingdom of God filling the earth and our God, who, our Father who is in heaven. And now we talk about our bread. But we start with where we are. So much of our lives are spent worrying about what we need. We work and we worry but Jesus gives us something so powerfully fundamental here that we can give in our lives to him. We can turn those worries over to God. And we see this all over the Sermon on the Mount. 
God is our Father, and He will take care of us. We just saw all of those examples of that. And this, of course, doesn't just involve food, but all of our needs that we can possibly have, that we can take before our Father, God will meet them. And yet again, Jesus is our perfect example of this. In the wilderness, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, and when he's tempted by Satan to worry about bread, he shows how he relies on God and how he trusts him to provide for his needs. And so what does that look like for us? We work so much in our society and make sure that we have enough, or maybe more than enough. And we worry as a people in this earth, we are as a whole worriers, and we continue to worry about where things will come from and where will we be provided for. In the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 6, shows us where we should be. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? And verse 34, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We can turn our concerns over to the Lord. There are a few practical things that we can know from this part of Jesus' prayer. Number one is God knows our needs. Give us this day our daily bread is entrusting God to take care of whatever need I have. And God knows it, and God can meet it. Number two, remember the pronouns in this prayer. This isn't give, a, give me this day my daily bread. This is give us this day our daily bread. I'm not asking God to just take care of me. I'm asking God to take care of us. If he gives me what I have, maybe we use it to share. That this is our bread. This is our daily bread that we get from the Lord. And then third, remember contentment. This isn't give us this day more bread than I can handle. This isn't give me bread to hoard. This is give me my daily bread. Realize when you've been given enough. Realize when your needs have been met and thank God for that. Don't keep asking for more and more, but be thankful. Because God has proved himself over and over in providence. And if we see that, we can say with the confidence of Abraham, God will provide. Give us this day our daily bread. And so Jesus' second request for the people is forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And the word debt is not just a money word here in this prayer. This word is one of the words translated sin. And the implications of this are amazing, that God is the one that can cancel our debts. He is the one who has the authority to remove debt from us, and only Him. And so there is an added challenge to this part of our prayer, because there's a standard again. Forgive us as we have forgiven. It isn't uh, we aren't cleansing our sins by forgiving our debtors, but God expects us to forgive. See again verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. God applies the standard to us the same as we apply to others. So practically, let's, let's stop and, and think about forgiveness. Have you ever prayed that God might forgive someone and then struggled to forgive them yourself? They're two different things, aren't they? And we know sometimes that sins have hurt us personally. 
we've got to remember to continue to extend our forgiveness to the people because God can forgive. There's a girl I went to college with who fell into a sinful situation. Uh, she was, got into drinking, into a relationship with a man she wasn't married with. And when she was confronted, confronted, she was one of the most repentant people I've ever seen. That next Sunday, she came forward to the front, and she made known her sin to the entire congregation, and she just asked to be forgiven. And she was a new Christian when this happened. And when the church surrounded her with love and forgave her, can you imagine how impactful that was to her faith? I can tell you she's a stronger Christian today than she was then. She's come to know the Lord more than she had at that point. And furthermore, the church grew from that experience too. That being able to stretch in our ability to give in forgiveness is something that helps us to grow. Forgiveness is such an essential part to who we are as God's people. So we have a very important part of our prayers in this verse, in forgiveness. The word forgive is used six times in these eight short verses. It's important to our prayers. It's central to our prayers with God. We pray that He might forgive us, and we pray that He might guide us to forgive others. Even Jesus, again, is the perfect example of this as He hung on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is our example in prayer, both in word and in deed. Jesus showed us what perfect forgiveness looked like. So for us, when there is an unforgiving heart, there is sin there. Forgiveness is so important for us to learn. And forgiveness is a way we can look exactly like Jesus. So we pray to God that we can be like him. And so God can take a forgiveness into account when he judges and forgives us. So Jesus gives his third and final request for the people. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And Jesus says this both positively and negatively. First negatively, he says, don't lead us into temptation. Keep us away from it. Help us to avoid it. We have a desire to avoid the danger and trouble sin creates. We fear sin, and we want to keep it as far away as possible. But there's a reality here for us, and that is temptation cannot be avoided forever. And so we pray to God to deliver us from evil. We find ourselves in a place we need to get away from, and we pray to God and we trust God that he can lead us out. Because guess what? God can save us from evil. He has been victorious over it. He has defeated it. He can lead us out from our temptations when we are overwhelmed. In this request, we are asking God to lead us when times are good and to deliver us when times are bad. What a blessing that God can be there for us at all times. But in this petition, there is a duality to it. We know that we must face trials in order to grow. We know that we must go through and succeed against temptations in order for our faith to become real. But we don't want to encounter the devil any more than we have to. We'd rather run away from our sin than conquer sin. We've made no gains in our faith by sitting in our Christian armchairs and hoping God will deliver us without working at it ourselves. But help our request to be, Lord, I'm going into a severe test here. Don't let me go without your power and without your protection. So what can we do about this? A couple practicalities real quick. We have to see our temptations for what they are. 
our hearts are not where they need to be. When we are drawn away from the Lord, we need to reevaluate our love for the Lord. There's always progress to be made here. We aren't done growing until our hearts are fully given to God, until there is no looking back, no desire for the, for the sins of our past, and only a desire for Him. For us to pray, lead me not into temptation, means that I will not put myself into temptation. I will not willfully or blindfully walk into sin over and over again. But we truly desire for our lives to be pure and holy and that we walk with the Lord. And so when we encounter sin, when we've found ourselves in the middle of a temptation, we've got to stop trusting in ourselves that I can, by my own strength, get out of this and start trusting in God. Deliver us from evil. That's where we've got to land at the end of this prayer. Only God can conquer sin. And it's time we use the power of prayer to express our trust in Him to do so. After this prayer, we can't help but praise. Hallowed be His name. God's name is lifted up in us. We serve a great God. What a prayer that Jesus has given us. This is the prayer that teaches us who God is. This prayer teaches us how to live this prayer teaches us to find our place in the church. We should share this prayer together today. We have another activity that we're going to do together. You've done a lot of homework over the last few weeks, and I thank you so much for your participation in that. This one you don't have to turn back in. I think it fits in the spirit of don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But we have uh, half sheets in the back that are uh, the Sermon on the Mount split into each day of the week where we can, as a church, pray through this prayer. And it'll guide us to be able to find our place in the church. So if you want to find your place in the church through prayer, this is a good place to start. So please grab a sheet to participate in praying as a church. Thank you for your time and attention. We're going to have a song that will encourage us. So let's stand together and sing to our great God.